It's 12.08, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us, as we do always, the first couple segments of the program. Today actually might go a little bit longer. We live stream on Facebook. You can go to facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ. You can participate in that way as well. A lot of stuff coming up on the program. During the 1 o'clock hour, I, I want to talk about the continuing controversy and fallout involving Serena Williams in the U.S. Open. We discussed this yesterday. She throws a fit on, on Saturday after being penalized, and some people are seeing this as an example of racism and sexism. I think it's an example of an out-of-control bad sport. But there is an editorial cartoonist from Australia, of all places, who now, well, finds himself being swamped on social media, accused of being a, a racist for drawing an editorial cartoon about the incident. If you want to see the cartoon itself, if you text me the word cartoon, C-A-R-T-O-O-N, cartoon, to 414-799-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, I'll send you a link to the story in the cartoon, and we're going to, like I say, discuss it, and I'll describe it. But if you want to get a head start, text me the word cartoon, C-A-R-T-O-O-N, to 414-799-1620. We'll talk about this probably during the 1 o'clock hour of the show, because I do not want to bury the lead. If There are certain shared experiences that if you were of a certain age and you were alive, you you remember them. My parents, who are are no longer with us, were, I don't know, 12, 13 years old when when Pearl Harbor occurred. And I can remember speaking to both of them. And and they doesn't matter what point in time in their life they, they were. They remembered vividly where they were when they first learned about the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. If you were alive during the time of the Kennedy assassination in November of 1963, you remember where you were. I, I was I was in first grade at a grade school in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and, and I, I remember somebody, the principal, coming in and talking to the teacher. I remember school being called off early, everybody being sent home. I remember that weekend watching the coverage of the funeral in the black and white televisions. If you were alive in November of 63 and of an age that you can remember, you remember where you were during the Kennedy assassination. If you were in that situation, if you were alive and of an age that you can remember, you remember where you were when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon in uh, the summer of 1969. You, you, You recall that vividly. Maybe to a lesser extent, you remember where you were in 1974 when Richard Nixon resigned the presidency. That's that's not quite in the same category, but uh, but I think a lot of people will remember that. Certainly, for many people, you remember where you were in 1986 when there was the Challenger explosion. But for everybody, again, who was alive and of a certain age, you remember vividly where you were on September 11th of 2001, when the Twin Towers were attacked, when the Pentagon was attacked 17 years ago today, is a day, to borrow the phrase from President Roosevelt, is a day that will live in infamy. And there were feelings, of course, after September 11th, 2001, where we came together as a country, and that quickly fractured, and now... I think 17 years later, you have another generation of Americans who are growing up and don't don't know what September 11th was. It's just something that is in the history books. 
And one of the things I do every year when I have the opportunity to do this show is we devote a couple segments on the program to looking back and looking at, at everything that has gone on since September 11th, 2001. So we're going to start off. We're going to spend a couple segments of the program doing this. You can participate also. Again, we live stream at facebook.com slash 620WTMJ. But let's get right to it. 414-799-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Where were you on September 11th of 2001? And, and what do you remember most about that day and about the aftermath? I think it is important to have these discussions again as we get further and further away from that terrible day. I think it's important for all of us to kind of think back and go back and, and remember what our feelings were, where we were, and in part to make a commitment to continue to educate those people who we're too young to remember what September 11th, 2001 was all about. So where were you on 9-11, 414-799-1620, and what do you remember most vividly? We're going to take a break, then we're going to be back. Like I say, we're doing this for a couple segments. We do this every year on September 11th, 414-799-1620. You can also participate, facebook.com slash 620WTMJ. Back with your calls in just a moment. It's 1214. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1217, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ on Facebook Live. Don writes, almost 20% of the population in the United States was born after September 11th, 2001. They have absolutely no recollection of the terrorist attack. Um, yeah, that, that's true, which is why every year we take several segments of this program, and we're not going to bury the lead today. We start off by discussing where were you on September 11th, 2001? What do you most remember about that? Michelle in Kenosha. Michelle, you're first. Good afternoon. Hi. Hi. I remember it as like it was yesterday. Um, as a teacher, too, I talk to my students a lot about uh, keep, keep things in your mind as, as history goes through to remember those important days. And and um, I just know that I was working a third shift job, and my boss was kind of telling me there's something going on in New York. Right. Uh, you know, didn't think anything of it. Got home, was about to go to bed, and... And I'm called and said, better turn on the news. I think World War III just started. And we sat up and watched the second plane hit. And uh, the other big thing I remember about that day was the uh, gas stations at the afternoon were miles long. Because everybody thought there was going to be huge issue with with getting uh, gas and everything. And and I was going to school. Right. Um, in the evening, so yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Thanks for calling, Michelle. What's interesting is during that that initial period, nobody knew what was going on. I mean, I I vividly remember I was I was working at WTMJ at the time. I, I was getting ready at, at at my home, and you know, my my late wife was she was getting ready as well. I was in the den, kind of getting ready. I, I had it on TV, and and I saw the first plane. They were showing the film of the first plane hitting the first of the Twin Towers. And I, I think a lot of us at the time, I, first of all, I thought it was an aviation accident. That, that's what I thought at first. And, and then once you heard it was a passenger plane, then if, you know, what, a half hour later or whatever that was, when the second plane hits, you realize this is not an aviation uh, situation. This is an attack. And then later on when you get the reports about the, watching the, you know, the towers crumble, I mean, my my goodness gracious, but at that time, also, we didn't know what this was. 
And so all across the country, people are wondering, all right, is this, are there going to be more coordinated attacks? And you have the incident in the Pentagon, and then you have the, the, the flight in Pennsylvania that was apparently targeted for the Capitol. But we did not know the extent of this. We knew this nation was under attack, but we didn't know how. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Andre in Milwaukee. Andre, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Where were you on September 11th, and what's your most vivid recollection? Uh, I had the day off work from Pottawatomie. I was at home, and uh, the answering machine woke me up with my girlfriend calling from her work. She was listening to a morning radio show, and uh, they were describing what they were seeing on their monitor. Right. And I got up and listened to her message and turned on the TV, and it was just unfolding right in front of me. Um, it, almost unbelievable, right? Oh, I was I was stunned. I called my father immediately, who was retired, and he turned on the TV, and... Uh, I kept calling her all day long because they didn't have a TV. She was in her office, and so I kept updating her every time something happened. When the first tower came down, I called her and I said, "One just came down. Oh my god!" Oh yeah, just I mean, th- thanks for it. Was just you watching it with, with stunned stunned disbelief, and I, I I mean I kept I remember I kept thinking about this is how my parents must have felt, you know, when, when they heard the news in 1941 now, about the attacks on Pearl Harbor. Of course, though, you didn't have televisions and, and you didn't have these broadcasts, so you could watch this thing unfold in real time. But it was it was just that type of an incredible experience. And again, part of it was the, the not knowing what was going on. Here's a text. I was at home in Sarasota, Florida, not too far from where President Bush was reading to a group of students. They shut down major roads in the airport so he could quickly and safely leave town. Later, we found out some of the terrorists got um, their flight training locally. Uh, September 11th will eternally be linked to this area. Let's talk to Clara in Pewaukee. Clara, good afternoon. Hi. Hi, Clara. Uh, We were in New York uh, just for kind of like a short vacation. Uh, We're standing in Times Square, and we saw the the plane on the the first plane, and then we got on the subway because we really didn't know what was going on. And then they... uh, Stopped the subway down by uh, Canal Street, and we watched the buildings fall and stuff, and it'll always be in our memory. Uh, we were with uh, our niece, and we call every year at this time, and it's huh. every year I cry. So, Claire, you you actually in person saw the plane hit the first tower? Well, we saw it on the screen, and okay. then we went, we went down there, and then we saw the Got buildings, it. and we saw a couple people jump, and oh my uh, gosh, we, and we saw the people, and we saw the buildings actually fall, and then we had to walk back, and we saw that um, the right. Pentagon had been hit, and we really didn't realize, you know, what's going to happen next because there was no cell phones or anything. Right. And, it was we were there until that following Friday. Well, that's what I was going to say because what people also forget is that I mean, air travel in this country was essentially grounded. Yeah. So you you nobody was going anywhere for a, at least a week or so unless you could rent a car or maybe, maybe take a train or something. So you were in New York a whole extra week. Yeah, we, well, we came home that Friday on right. the uh, train, but got it. Uh, it's just it's just something that will always be with you and always. It's it's hard to explain and hard to um, understand Claire. why our country is the way, you know, today, why people cannot be peaceful. Thanks for the call. Well, also, 
why, why we can't be as together as we were in the immediate aftermath, because you you saw the country come together in a way. And I, I, I look, I wasn't around in 1941, but I mean, I, I, I know that there was a rallying. This country rallied together after being attacked. I saw that happen in 2001. The country rallied together. And unfortunately, it, it only lasted for a, a brief period of time. You know, Claire is talking about being in New York for days. I had a, some, some very close friends who were actually in the air. They were coming back from Europe when, when this happened, their flight. And of course, once this happened, nothing, I mean, all flights were grounded. Nothing was going on. And so their flight, I want, it was, I know it was, it was diverted. They ended up, I think, in Newfoundland and, and they were there for a week. The first couple nights, like sleeping in some high school gym or something, because you, you just, I mean, th- th- you weren't getting into this country. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Lucy in Milwaukee. Lucy, you're in WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi. Hi Lucy. Um- Back on that day, I was I was court commissioner in Milwaukee County, and I was sitting there preparing my case files, and people were coming in the door, and the secretary just ran in and said, turn on the radio. My boyfriend just called. Somebody's attacked a building in New York, and we did, and of course, the predictable chaos happened after that with evacuating the courthouse, which some of us thought was unnecessary, but anyway, that's what happened. Right. And I had people, I was trying to get as many hearings done, because you know from being a lawyer, rescheduling a bunch of hearings is just hell on the people. So I was trying to get as many hearings done before we had to get out, and I happened to have a visually impaired couple, and they had their dog, and the the seeing eye dog. The dog caught the tension and threw up all over the floor. And that's really my strongest memory. And then we evacuated. I got my son from high school. I was in a daze, walked around the VA cemetery. And I still get emotional like that other lady, even though I didn't see anything fall. But but my strongest memory is that poor dog throwing up all over the floor. (laughs) Thanks for calling this. I mean, it is... It, it it's just it is impossible to describe and and it's it, it's also again it it's this uncertainty now you know now with the hindsight of seventeen years we we understand what what happened we understand that this had been planned for a long time we understand the scope of what the attack was but back then nobody knew anything I mean you just you did not know you know when. Where is the next plane? What exactly is going to happen? All right, we are going to continue this. Um, again, I, I think this is important. I think it's important for us to always remember this. So we're going to do this for a couple more segments. If you are on the line, please hold on. We're going to try to get to as many calls as we possibly can. Also, a lot of people are weighing in. We're, we're up on Facebook Live. We're live streaming. It's facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ as well. Back with more in just a couple minutes. 1226 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1228, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Let's talk to Bruce in Fond du Lac. Bruce, good afternoon. Where were you 17 years ago today? Uh, I was laid off at the time, and I was at home watching on TV and following it throughout the day. And I remember that evening, all of the individual and group candlelight vigils and mm-hmm. everything, and, and all the just a sense of patriotism that everybody had at that moment. Yep. And my sister was on her honeymoon over in Europe, set to come home the next day. And <laughs> we're not a family of means or anything that they got stuck over there for another week and couldn't get back. Right. 
Right. Yeah. That. I mean, thanks. I, I had. I was telling you a story earlier about my friends that were in the air coming back from Europe. I also have two very close friends. They were in Hawaii, and of course, there's a what a six hour time difference or whatever it is. And they, they were due to come back on September 11th, 2001. They, they wake up in their hotel room. My, my friend Jim calls the airline that make sure that the flights are on track. And the lady says, no, the flight's been canceled. He goes, what do you mean the flight's been canceled? And it's like, sir, have you turned on the television? Well, no, and he turns on the television and finds that out. But they were out there for, for an extra week as well. Shelly in Green Bay. Shelly, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi. Hi, Shelly. Um, yes, I was, I'm since retired, but I was working at the Mopar Park Chapel in Milwaukee. Okay. And everybody was listening to the radios, and they started to, you know, tell what was going on, these buildings going down, then we had an announcement, and we were, you know, running down to the cafeteria to watch the TV when someone told me the Pentagon got hit. Right. And my sister was working in there at the time. Oh, my gosh. And I remember I just froze, and... Everything in me just dropped. I started shaking, and, and I'm like, oh, my God. And we went into the cafeteria, and we just were, like, in a daze. You're watching this like you don't believe it. And at the same time, I'm thinking, i got to get out of here. Um, but there's really much, not much I can do. They did let us leave. I got my kids out of school. They were at Oak Creek High School. Um, they were kind of mad at me because they thought I was dramatic. Huh. But I, I got home, and... I called my husband home and stuff, and there was our families just calling each other. You know, again, there weren't many cell phones. We had a few, but it was the very longest day and night of our lives. We, it's, it was probably 14 hours, I want to say, later that we heard from her. I, that's what I was going to ask you, how, how long it took. So you all you know is that there's been the attack on the Pentagon, and it takes you, you say, 14 hours before you finally hear from your sister that she's okay. Yes. Wow. She was on the opposite side of the building facing Andrews Air Force Base, so right. um, it hit the back from where she was at. And there was a lot of construction going on at the Pentagon at the time. And at first, she said she heard like what sounded like a wrecking ball, you know, like there was all these loud sounds anyway. Right. And all the lights went out. And she was a, she's still a federal police officer. She works in Pennsylvania now, but she had to... Um, assist in all these injuries and just horrible people missing limbs and oh my gosh it was it was just quite the ordeal and just um you know we're so blessed and and by coincidence kind of because she flew into town for the Packers game huh. the other night we went to the game I'm meeting her for lunch and taking her to the airport today so it's <laughs> really special day for our family Wow, September 11th. Thanks for 17 years ago. All right, we're, we're going to continue this for at least one more segment. I, I think it is that important. For the first time since we started, we've got a couple open phone lines. If you want to join us, 414-799-1620. That is the Ameri- Accutech Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Um, we're going to be back with your calls. We're also continuing to live stream. It's facebook.com slash 620WTMJ. Back with more. We're discussing where you were on September 11th, 2001, and what your most vivid recollection is 1237 Jeff Wagner WTMJ here's a text I was working on the ramp for Midwest Express that morning I remember the airport being something I'd never seen before absolutely quiet Um, that's certainly the case let's talk to Pat in West Bend Pat you're on WTMJ good afternoon hi hi Pat so should I tell what I was doing absolutely yes 
I was at Southbridge working at a Christmas store getting ready, you know, for Christmas, and I heard on the news what had happened. So I called my mom, and it was dead silence. And I said, Mom, did you hear me? And she reported or she made the comment back to me that Andy's there. Mm-hmm. And You're, I just froze. Okay, and Andy was your, we're talking about Andy, Andrea Hopperman. Andy is Andrea Hopperman, right. Right. And I can remember just running downstairs and asking them if I could go home. And so I went over to my mom's house and... We just, our eyes were glued to the TV from that point on. Mm-hmm. I know I can remember calling my husband. I wanted him home. I took our son out of school, and he was home with us, too. Right. I, I've, I've had it now. Is, 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 is Andrea's father, Gordon, is that your brother or your brother-in-law? Brother-in-law. Brother-in-law. Kathy is my sister. Right. And I, I know I've had, I've had the opportunity to meet them over the years on, on, on many occasions. Did, uh-huh. When when you first heard about this, I, well, so I guess you knew that your I guess you found out that your niece was was there. Did you know right away what had happened to her? Did that come out out after a, a period of time? No, I knew right away. Okay. You know, everybody kept saying she'll be okay, she'll be okay. But when you actually saw the towers go down, mm-hmm. you know, in your heart, right? You know that it wasn't. And she was she was just there on a business trip. I mean, she didn't work Her in the very first business trip. Yes. Oh man, I, I tell twenty five years old. It, it's just uh, yeah, and I know that that grief just, just never leaves. I, I'm sure that you just relive that on a, on just a regular basis. That that shock and the the stunned feeling that you had to have had at the time. Correct. Um, Pat, thanks for joining us. I, I appreciate it. And like I said, that's, I, I, I've had an opportunity to meet Andre Haber, Haberman's parents on a number of occasions at different events. And I know they've worked very, very diligently to keep the, the memory of their daughter alive. But that's, there are faces. I mean, that, that's the, that's the thing about September 11th, 2001. And it's one of the reasons why I, I, I spend time every year doing segments like this because these are the faces that you can't forget. And as a matter of fact, there, there's, there's a real interesting story that's out. You, you you had, you know, the first responders, the firefighters, the police officers, other people who, who did not, you know, who, who were there, who did not lose their life on September 11th. But it's interesting. One of the things they're starting to see is there's a lot of illnesses that are related to September 11th. People who, um, I, I, you know, whether going into the fire or breathing toxic fumes or, or whatever, are now starting to experience, you know, symptoms, and they're, they're actually the number of people are starting to die as a result of that exposure. So, you know, the horror of September 11th goes on and on and on and on. Let's talk to Sarah in Waukesha. Sarah, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi. Hi, Sarah. Um, so uh, I was eight years old um, in 2001, and I remember my mom brought. Um, us to school, and we were all little. I was the oldest, and um, mm-hmm. that, like only a few hours later, my dad shows up in my classroom and is saying he wants to take me and my sister home. And, you know, we knew that if my dad is picking us up, there's either, you know, something something weird is going on right. or something really bad just happened. Right. And... 
we get home and the whole ride, he didn't say anything. He didn't say why we were going home. And we were just all in the car, you know, when we're little and we're looking at him and he looks worried and we don't know what's going on. And we get home and my mom is just sitting in front of the TV and she's on the phone um, with her brother, my godfather. And he at the time was living in Virginia and uh, living close to D.C. Right. And she's talking to him and we're watching news coverage. And all of a sudden we just watch um, the tower go down. Right. And being little, you know, I just remember very vividly my mom just screaming, watching right. the tower go down. And, and she she's horrified. And me as like a little kid and I don't know what's going on. You know, I'm horrified because because mom you know, is. Yeah. You, you look to your parents for, you know, you think that your parents um, are, you know, are superheroes and you think that they're all cool and collected and seeing your parents get so scared right. like that is really scary as a kid. And I'll never forget it as long as I live. Yeah. No, thanks. And again, you're you're just at that, that age. I'm trying to think when, when I was in first grade and again, I, I do have recollections of the Kennedy assassination. I was probably six. So you're around eight probably right at at that age where you start having the vivid recollections maybe seven maybe six or something like that but it was just for again i, I mean i was just struck by the, the fact that 20 percent of america americans have been born since 2001 so what we are talking about is something out of a history book but for so many of us it, it's just it, it's like it happened yesterday in some respects i don't know about you but but to me it seems like it was forever and in some respects, it seems like it was just yesterday. John in Appleton. John, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Thanks Hi, John. for taking my call. Sure. Um, before I tell you my story, I just want to reach out to your previous caller by the name of Pat and right. let, her, let her know that can't understand what your pain is. I didn't know anybody over there, but there are so many of us in America that can totally empathize with you, girl. You just right. stay strong and always know that America's with you. So I was... Uh, I was actually living in the Bayview area, and I was on my way to work. I had WTMJ on the radio, and they right. had this live feed. To a, they were talking to somebody in New York who had witnessed they, him and his wife were having breakfast. And he had witnessed, and he was explaining how they were having breakfast, and they saw the first plane go into the tower. And as he's explaining this, this is going on for a few minutes, and they're asking him what happened, et cetera, et cetera. And then all of a sudden, in the background, I hear his wife scream. Mm-hmm. And then he says, oh, my God, oh, my God, another plane just went into the second tower. Right. And instantly, as I'm getting onto the home bridge, this cold shudder went through me. And all of a sudden, I realized this wasn't an accident. Yeah. You guys finally had, you finally had the evilness in your heart to come up with such an ingenious plan to do this. And yeah. instantly, I thought of my family. I mean, we all did. And it's, it's a time and a it's a time and a place that I don't think any of us will ever forget. No, no, thank you. You're right. Thanks. And that's why I, I understand I'm repeating myself a little bit. But but it, it was as, as tough. It is one thing to read about something. It's another thing to live through it as it is unfolding in real time. And like I say, I mean, I vividly remember I was at the den in my old house in Whitefish Bay. I'm kind of getting ready for work. And my 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 wife calls and says, I turn, turn on the TV. I turn on the TV and I. I you, you had seen they're showing the footage of the first plane flying into the Twin Tower. Now, at the time, 
I guess I didn't realize it was a jetliner at first. I, I was just thinking, okay, some idiot in a private plane flies it in. But I, I admit, I was thinking aviation accident. I think a lot of people were thinking aviation accident. Well, then after you have the, the second plane hit, you know you're not talking about that. You know what this is. And then you can just... The, the towers did not collapse right away. You can just, you know, they, they stood up for a while, and you're getting all these reports about people trying to get people out of the towers. Oh, just, just the, the horror of that. And I, I guess the look, there's no, there's no silver lining in that dark cloud. There, there just isn't. But you know, one of the things that I, I think a lot of us should kind of reflect back on is is the way this country came together and it didn't matter whether you were liberal or conservative or white or black or brown or republican or democrat or a packers fan or a bears fan the the country came together in a way that it hadn't done in my lifetime before that and certainly hasn't done since you know we united together as americans and maybe Maybe there's some of this spirit of if there's anything positive to come out of 9/11, and there, again, that's a very dark cloud. But if there's anything positive to come out of it, maybe it's to try to remember that spirit where we kind of were able to put aside the partisanship and put aside some of the pettiness and put aside some of the the individual goals and recognize that at the end of the day, you know, we're we're all Americans. We lost that pretty quickly after 9/11, but. It's it's a feeling that hopefully maybe we will um, you know continue to take with us. Okay, we're we're going to move on. We do this once a year. I'm sorry, a lot of people want to weigh in, but um, we we get the sense. I, my message is this: if you if you have smaller children tonight, as you're sitting down over dinner, waiting for the Brewers game to start, all that, it it might be instructive to just take a couple minutes. And when you're sitting there having dinner and you're talking about you know what went on today. Just to mention to your kids, you know, there there was this thing 17 years ago today. This country was attacked in a way that we never thought would happen. We were perhaps unprepared for this, but we came together as a country. Maybe this is an opportunity to, again, just say, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people lost their lives that day. Innocence of this country ended. It's changed the way we do business moving forward. Uh, security. That's it's why you go through the metal detectors at the airports. I mean, these are all the reasons for it, but it's all because of what happened on September 11th, 2001. 1248, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1252, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you want to go back and watch that segment, we, we do live stream it. Uh, we do that for the first couple segments of every show day. Facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ. Let me just share a couple of comments. People took a lot of time writing. We were just swamped both on the text line and our Facebook live line. Uh, Joe says, I was babysitting my youngest sister, and all she wanted to do was watch Barney. I was reading Storming Heaven by Dale Brown. I quit reading it for a couple months. Now I know it's a work of uh, fiction, but I was so terrified. I had to work. I rode the bus, didn't know if it was safe. My mom was taking care of her sister-in-law's father, and my dad was working. I couldn't get a hold of either one of them. Um, let's see. I was recycling for the city of Milwaukee in an alley when I heard it on the news and went back to our place where we parked cars at the time. I had a van with a TV in it. We sat there, a half dozen of us, watching TV. 
supervisor came up and said, get back to work. Um, yes. Let's see. Doug writes, I was in Milwaukee waking up and I heard the news on my clock radio. I saw the second uh, plane hit the World Trade Center on TV. I was shocked later on when I heard that the Pentagon was hit and there was a plane crash near Pittsburgh. It was very weird not hearing jet planes fly over Milwaukee. I was in St. Louis the weekend after and I heard military planes flying all over the city. Yeah, that's it was just, it was an amazing time in American history. There's just no question about it. And hopefully, 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 in as this country, we're, we're not going to have to go through something like that again. But as I was saying a couple minutes ago, if, if you've got younger children who don't really remember what September 11, 2001 was, use this as perhaps a, use it as a teachable moment. All right, coming up in the next hour, we've got a lot of different ground we want to cover one of the, the people, one of the survivors of the Benghazi attack, he's he's going public, and he's had some harsh things to say about some of President Obama's comments about that, and now he's being investigated, believe it or not, by the Secret Service. I'm going to tell you about that, and we are going to discuss it. Hurricane Florence is heading directly for the East Coast. There are evacuation orders. Some people are deciding to stay. Some people are deciding to go. We're going to talk about how you should respond when the governor of the state says, get the heck out. And the Serena Williams controversy just refuses to die. Serena Williams, arguably the greatest women's tennis player ever, certainly the best women's tennis player of her generation, had an absolute, in my opinion, um, all, all her worst characteristics came out as she was losing a match in the U.S. Open. I, I think she's, in general, a very classy player, but every once in a while, I mean, people describe her as, as being occasionally a bully. And that came out on Saturday in the U.S. Open finals. We talked about that a little bit on yesterday's show. But there's an editorial cartoonist in Australia who did an editorial cartoon about the Serena Williams meltdown. He is now being accused of racism. I, If you want to see a link to the cartoon... You can text me the word cartoon, C-A-R-T-O-O-N, to 414-799-1620, and I will send you a a copy, a link to the story involving this, because during the next hour, we're going to talk about whether this was racist or whether people are seeing racism in this cartoon that that really doesn't exist. Plus, I've got a story about a 16-year-old who was involved in a hit and run. We always ask the question, where are the parents? Should the parents be held accountable? That is particularly relevant in this story that is all coming up stick around it's 12:56 this is Jeff Wagner WTMJ it's 107 Jeff Wagner WTMJ so melissa i was reading the, this book about a guy named Henry Flagler do you know who Henry Flagler is i don't was? i'm not i'm not aware of him okay well um he was one of john rockefeller's original partners in the Standard Oil Company, okay. so going mm-hmm. back to the late 1800s. And so he was one of the nation's first multi-billionaires, okay? Just made, you know, um, he would be what we would describe, if he was Russian, we'd call it an oligarch. I mean, so Henry Flagler made this ton of money. And what he wanted to do, his dream with all this money, is he wanted to build an overland railroad between the East Coast, New York, down to Key West, Florida. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it might seem simple now, but we're talking about the late 1800s and the early 1900s where 
this huge stretch of land through Florida and the Key West. This was there weren't roads. This was just undeveloped. This was such a huge dream that right, no one could even imagine. Right, right, exactly. And and you'd have to go over water and all these type of things. I, I just got, I got done about a month ago reading a book called The Last Train to Paradise, which is about this this endeavor about how he spent a, a good portion of his fortune mm-hmm. in in trying to bring about this dream to build. Uh, again, and it was just it was so interesting because you think, oh, well, what's the big deal now? Well, okay, back then, you know, Key West was essentially uh, an island that was not attached to the U.S. Right? How, how do you? And and again, you're not using it's not 2018. You're in 1903. How do you figure out how to build bridges and railroad spans that go through the Atlantic Ocean in these undeveloped areas? I mean. Miami was not much more than a cow town back at the time. So it's just an absolutely fascinating Interesting book. book. Mm-hmm. Now, I bring this up because they they got, they used to call it Flagler's Folly. And what he would do is, is, is they would develop different areas. Then what he would do is at the end of each, like, installment, they would bring in, they would, they would bring in fishing camps and hotels and stuff and all these rich people from the East Coast. That's how they would get down to Florida to vacation in, in the winter. And that's why if you go to South Florida, like every second thing is named after Flagler. Right, right? Every, <laughs> Everything's Flagler. Mm-hmm. But I, I brought this up because th- this, this dream ended. Now, he had passed away by then. But in 1935, massive <coughs> hurricane swept in um, and just essentially destroyed all the rail destroyed the railroad. I mean, just just took down bridges and stuff, and, and and the railroad line was going towards bankruptcy anyways. And so after this all happened, it it just it just absolutely devastated the the area, and, and they were never able to rebuild. That's why there's not a, there's not a railroad that, that's down there now. But let me ask you this: If you were living in North Carolina right now and you got the evacuation order, would you leave? I probably would. I mean, I think uh, it's better to be safe than sorry, especially if I had like friends or if I had you know, people that I knew that were a little bit more inland. I think it's important that people, you know, even, even if it, you know, even if it doesn't hit your particular corner really hard, I think it's important to evacuate. What do you think? Crew, would you go? <coughs> even if it means leaving your property and you're not sure if you're going to get back. Yeah, you rent. So, yeah, you rent and you're going, well, actually. You know, that's one of the arguments about renting to begin with. If you're thinking about, you know, for, for all the people that, for example, own second homes in Florida and things like that, if you rent, you don't have to worry about the hurricane and stuff. I mean, you have to worry to an extent, but it, but it's not your place. So you would go. I would go. Yeah. It would be inconvenient. But of course, you know, what's the alternative? You stay around and, and you know, you watch your, your home be demolished. Okay. And safety. So let's decide you decide to leave. Yes. All right, you say, okay, look, I, I'm, I'm going to take these evacuation orders seriously. I'm heading out. And then, as happens from time to time, the hurricane shifts. It, it misses your area, and you, you wouldn't have needed. Are you going to feel cheated? Are you going to be upset? I shouldn't have left. I should have stayed. I went to all this trouble. Well, I think, I think initially I would feel like, wow, I'm glad I left. But uh, the next time another one rolls around, I may take different steps where eh, maybe I'll just wait and see. If it's really going to be that bad, you know, I could see how people, if this is their first one, of course, you want to heed that. But if it's your second or third, obviously, you've been through a lot. Um, but storms, you know, are you can't predict storms. So, OK, well, that's thank you, Melissa. That's where I that's where I want to start off this hour. I mean, Hurricane Florence is <clears throat> heading directly for the east coast of of this country. Uh, originally, they were thinking it was going to make landfall sometimes Thursday 
around South Carolina. Now they've object, uh, uh, adjusted the predictions a little bit, and they're thinking maybe North Carolina um, and, and then up through Virginia. The governor of North Carolina is apparently saying if you live um, in the Outer Banks or in some of these coastal areas, just just get out because this is picking up steam. Apparently, the that there's you know warm air out in the Atlantic and it's mixing and, it, and it's intensifying. And they're thinking this this has gone from a Category Two to a Category Four hurricane, which is a a big deal. Um, they are concerned that it also is going to hit um, the shores of Virginia. They are saying that if it stalls out, they are looking at record rainfalls um, that could reach into Georgia, Tennessee, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, even Ohio. It's that bad. Um, but but clearly, if this hits like it is expected, it, it's going to be devastating. And um, you know, power will be out. Power will be out for a lengthy period of time. It, it's going to be life-threatening. All right, I want to open up the phone lines because I am genuinely curious I have never ridden out a hurricane, thankfully, and hope to never have to do that. I, I've never been in that situation. But if it's you, and again, it, it's one thing if you're vacationing. If you're vacationing, I think you obviously, to the extent you can get out, you get out. But if it's where you live, if you own that property, and you're being told you're in the path of a hurricane, do you stay or do you go? Now, for Melissa, for my producer, Gru, and for me, the answer is pretty simple. You 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 go if if you can get out. Now, I mean, the reality is sometimes you you can't get out. But but if you can get out, given the warnings, I, I'm getting out because at the end of the day, yes, stuff can happen to your property, but you can replace that. It's just if bad things happen, it's just it's stuff, and stuff can be replaced. You you can't replace people's lives. I would be leaving. I'd be on the first car out or plane out or whatever. I would be evacuating, but nevertheless, there's going to be a certain percentage of people, and, and I don't know if it's 50% or 30% or 10%, who are going to say, oh, what's the big deal? We'll ride it out. Would you stay or would you go if you were one of the people living now in North Carolina, um, along the shore of Virginia, maybe in South Carolina, where they're saying, hey, we're going to get hit, and it's going to be a big one, and it's going to be a bad one. Do you stay or do you go? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Back to discuss in just a moment. It's 114. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 117. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. The coastal areas of Virginia, North Carolina, and South Carolina are bracing for the arrival of Hurricane Florence. Gene Miller has the latest on the path of the storm tomorrow at 721. Tune in to Wisconsin's Morning News. What we're discussing right now is that very fact. The, the storm is expected to make landfalls sometime Thursday, I think are the estimates they have now. Right now they're saying North Carolina appears to be where, where it's going to hit, but, but that's subject to adjustment. Uh, there are orders to evacuate all up and down the East Coast. Some people will decide to ride it out. If it's me, I'm getting out of Dodge. I, I just am. Tom in Greenfield. Tom, you're at WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yeah, Jeff. Uh, I was in the service and. Uh uh, it's in the Navy. There's a station out of Norfolk. Norfolk, uh, sure. At the time, and uh, we, uh, when they get the, you get those type of storms and stuff like that, either we're at the Anchorage and we're moving, or or something else. But uh, material items, like you said, can be replaced in that. But uh, yeah, the, the fleet in that, uh, when you get those type of storms along the East Coast, there anywhere in some of that 
you got to move on out or you got to, you know, right. look for other things and get gather the whole crew and everything else to move. Yeah, I mean, you don't fool. I mean, thanks to the call time, yeah, you don't fool around with that. The ships, they, they you know, they, they leave harbor and they, they go out and try to find safe places elsewhere. As far as, as and I, I have several friends who own property all along, all along the eastern shore there, and I, I think to a person, having ridden out, having been through hurricanes before, even if, look, I guess this is how I look at it. If it turns out to miss your place, okay, that, that's great, you missed it. It's sort of like around here, if you get a warning saying there's going to be a blizzard, and so you prepare for the blizzard, you got all the stuff laid in, and then it turns out that, that something happened, and it doesn't turn out to be a blizzard, and it turns out to be what we call a bust forecast where they're wrong. All right, you're you're, you're ahead on points. It, you didn't it didn't you didn't get two feet of snow. You didn't get massive power outages. You're you're ahead. I guess I would look at it the same way. If they're saying, look, there is a catastrophic Category Four hurricane bearing down on you, that's got the potential for incredible amounts of damage. Get out. So you get out, you inconvenience yourself, and it turns out it turns out the forecast is wrong. No problem. That's great. There's no damage. You go back a couple days later, and you pick up your life. If you decide to stay and ride it out, though, um, maybe you do, maybe you don't. And I, I think one of the things that's always so frustrating to me about this, and, and mark my words, this will happen again, you're going to see all this TV coverage, and they'll be doing interviews with people who are having hurricane parties and things like that, and... You know, in many cases, those are the same people that, that they're going to need rescuing a couple days later. 414-799-1620. Dave in Waukesha. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. How are you doing? Real well. Thank you, sir. I'd be getting out. Well, as, as would I. I mean, first of all, I would take, I would take all the you know precautions I could to, to shore up you know, my home or whatever I could do reasonably. You know, plywood, all kind of crap like that. And then, I mean, staying there accomplishes what? What are you gonna just? You know, right. It's gonna like it's not like an intruder. I mean, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you're you're, you're going if if a hurricane hits, you are your property is going to be damaged. You're going to be without power. Right, you're what, be miserable. What, yeah, and and you may not. You know, I mean, and it accomplishes. But, but you know, long and short of it is, it, it accomplishes what? I mean, Mother Nature takes out her wrath, and and that's it. I mean, I'd rather. Watch it all unfold from some hotel room or in room service. Well, well, and and when you and your family are safe, you know, so it's not a situation where, oh my gosh, okay, if if the roof of the house, right, if the roof of the house gets blown off, let's say, or giant trees fall on the house, you're not going to be able to stop that whether you're there or whether you're right. not there. Exactly. So yeah, yeah. So why don't you, you know, oh my God, my house had a bunch of trees fall on it. At least you're safe. From 300 miles away, so your kids aren't hurt, you're not hurt, your wife's not hurt, sure. Yeah, exactly. Like, whatever's going to happen, happens, whether you're there or not. I mean, it's, now, granted, you do want to take precautions as far as, you know, oh, sure. again, you know, boarding your house and all that stuff like that. But, you know, and, and you know, hopefully, you know, some people use the rationale where, well, there's going to be looters and stuff like that. Well, yeah, it's tough. Know, I, mean, I yeah. think that's, that's kind of a... Right, I, I'm with you. Right. No, thanks. I mean, I, I'm with you, too. I mean, but at the end of the day, it's stuff. You know, that, that's, it, it, it's stuff and maybe it's insured or maybe it's not insured, but it's just to me, to, to me, the, the idea of, oh, let's have this hurricane party and isn't this going to be cool? Eh, um, that, that, that sounds great until the thing hits. Jeff in Watertown. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi. Well, you guys said pretty much everything, uh, everything I was going to say. You want to hear on the side of caution? There is no upside to staying there. Absolutely none. And, 
I would be on the first plane, train, boat, uh, <laughs> car, out of there. <laughs> yeah, right. And and then just just kind of watch the reports and hope for the best. And okay, honey, we're 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 going inland for a couple for a few days, and we'll stay with our sister, or our brother, or whatever. Wisconsin's great in September. We're going to come out there. Now, thanks to guy. To me, uh, again, that's what makes sense. The Part of the thing that you will see over the coverage of the next couple of days will, to an extent, be to glorify some of the people who decide to stay. That, I think, is is the wrong choice. There is a reason why people are told to evacuate, and that is because, number one, it's not safe to stay. And, and number two, if they stay, um, you have emergency responders, for example. If people get in trouble... Well, they're, they're going to have to go try to help the people who stayed out, and you put those people's lives in jeopardy as well. I guess I just think it's irresponsible to try to ride out hurricanes. And in situations, I mean, look, I, I there's tornadoes, you don't get much advance warning. I mean, may, maybe you get a few minutes, or you get the tornado watches or whatever. But hurricanes, you know pretty much, and our, and our ability to forecast has gotten pretty good. You know where they're going to hit. So I, I think if I were living anywhere in that area, it would be, okay, Time time to go inland. We'll find some place, and then we'll come back in a few days and hope for the best. It's 123. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you want to see what we're talking about next, you can text me the word cartoon, C-A-R-T-O-O-N, to 414-799-1620, and I'll send you a link. The question is, is this racist, or are people seeing racism where none exists? Stick around. 124, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I feel like going surfing in a Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, that's Jimmy Buffett. He feels like going surfing in a hurry. I love that song. but We don't recommend that, though. We don't recommend that. No, no, no. It's fine to do it on a concert stage, but I think um, if I if I was living if I was living on the east coast of North Carolina, the Outer Banks, or wherever this hurricane, 135-mile-an-hour winds, my response would be get the you-know-what out of Dodge as quickly as I possibly can and hope for the best and then go back because at the end of the day, as a couple of the callers were saying, what, what are you going to do? I mean, okay, so you're trying to ride this out. You're in your house. Your power goes out. Tree falls down on your house. Okay, does it make any difference if you were there or not there? All right, let us let us switch gears. I, I said this yesterday. I, Serena Williams, female tennis player, I think is certainly the best female tennis player of her generation, maybe the best female tennis player ever. I, I have a lot of respect for her accomplishments She's towards the end of her career. She's 36 years old. She's just come back from a series of injuries and having a baby. So she's kind of making making a, a, a comeback. She is a fan favorite, as she deserves to be. She also has a history, or at least, and it's not surprising, I think, for anybody who's been at that level of the game for as long as she has. She has had a couple highly... Highly publicized incidents where she's lost her temper on the court. Some people say, hey, she's a wonderful person, but occasionally she, in fact, can be a bully. And there are instances of that over over the years. Doesn't take away anything about her greatness. And I understand that if you're if you're going to be competitive at that level in in anything, you're you're going to have an edge. I mean, that's I think that's what kind of things that, that drives you in any event. Last Saturday. 
U.S. Open Finals. Serena Williams playing a 20-year-old gal from Japan who um, is the up-and-comer. And in the first set, the, the challenger to Serena Williams, she wins big. The second set is competitive. Serena Williams is ahead three games to one. And what happens is, if you haven't been following this, her coach, who is in the stands, is making hand signals in her direction, encouraging her to move up or something. That, that's coaching. Coaching is not allowed. Now, apparently, it happens all the time at that level. The coaches sit in the player's box and they make hand signals. It happens all the time. Regardless, it's against the rules. Is that, I mean, it's against the rules. The referee sees this and he issues a caution. He says, okay, no, no penalty at this point in time, but he issues a caution. No, no coaching. So Serena Williams doesn't like this, and she says, you're, you're calling me a cheater, et cetera, et cetera, and the referee really doesn't respond, but she's very, very upset. She goes on to lose a point or two. She gets upset again. She throws her racket down. She breaks her racket. She shatters it. That is a point penalty, all right? So she then becomes progressively more outraged, and she won't, she won't let this thing drop. She keeps going to the referee and she keeps going at him. You are, you know, you're a thief. You stole a point from me. You need to apologize to me. You got to say you're sorry. Say you're sorry. And, and it's not just one or two comments. It's a constant thing. She's in the guy's face. Finally, he says, all right, I'm penalizing you again, which is now he, he did not warn her. He didn't say, if you say one more word, you're going to get penalized again. But I don't think that would have made any difference. She was clearly irate. She was out of control and she was just kept on. So she goes on to lose the set. The crowd, which was behind her, starts booing mercilessly. The gal who won, she's in tears because the crowd sort of is rooting for Serena, so they're booing her. It's just, it's a bad scene. It's a bad scene. And I argued yesterday that Serena Williams was out of control. And I, I, she was not sympathetic. Some people are trying to play this as an example of sexism or, well, men could get away with more. Well, I don't know about that one way or the other. But that doesn't change the fact that she was out of control and she deserved to be penalized. And the reality is, in any sort of sporting event, whether you're going after an umpire or a referee or whatever, if you are repeatedly going to say, you're a thief, you're a thief, apologize to me, and you're not going to let it up, at some point in time, there's going to be some form of discipline. All right, so with all that as a background, Saturday night, there's an editorial cartoonist in Australia who does a cartoon uh, about this incident. Now, cartoons, by their nature, are, are caricatures. There are, if, if you look at the cartoons that they draw of President Trump, his features are exaggerated. That's just the way editorial cartoonists draw them. So this cartoonist does a an editorial cartoon about the incident, and it, it shows Serena Williams. Now Serena Williams is also she she's big and muscular. She she's solid, okay, and she wears her her own sort of clothing line. So it's it's a cartoon, and it shows Serena Williams throwing a tantrum, and it's kind of got exaggerated. Figure and it's sort of an exaggerated, cartoonish kind of caricature of her jumping up and down, smashing her racket, and and throwing a tantrum. And on the other side, the um, the referee is talking to the gal who won, and the caption says, "Can you please just let her win?" All right, so that that's it. Well, a number of people actually put this out in Australia, and it doesn't get much reaction until people start seeing it in the United States. And the the 
internet explodes saying that this is this is racist because okay Serena Williams is an African American woman and this caricature well it it's mocking her as an African American woman and it is reminiscent of the way black people were portrayed you know decades ago during you know times of Jim Crow and things like that the um cartoonist says this has nothing to do with gender or race. So is this racist? It's 137, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, here, here's what happens. The the cartoonist in this case says, look, this has nothing to do with gender or race, period. The publisher says the cartoon about Serena is about her poor behavior on the day, not about race. A champion tennis player has a mega tantrum on the world stage, and the cartoon depicted that. It had nothing to do with gender or race. And, you know, I I think there is a lot to that. I I think that that's fair. Now, having said that, here here is the problem in, in 2018. Because we are so race centric, the, the idea is that anything in this, it's clearly a caricature of Serena Williams. But by caricaturing Serena Williams, you inevitably invite comparisons to caricatures that were racist from 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. So people will look at it and say, well, look at the way that he drew Serena Williams. And then look at the way, you know, people drew caricatures of black people 30 or 40 years ago and see all the different similarities. How can you say that this isn't racist? So the idea is, especially when people are looking for racism, you you look at this and you come to the conclusion that, yes, well, the guy had to be racist. Now, what does that mean? It, It effectively means that some people are going to get a pass for bad behavior. Now, maybe... Maybe you disagree with me in the editorial cartoonist, and maybe you think that Serena Williams was perfectly within her rights to throw the, this tantrum, and this is an example of you know, sexism at the U.S. Open or, or whatever. Okay, that, that's fine. We can disagree on that. But the problem becomes when you look at a situation like this and you then inject the element of race, and some people are always going to want to inject the element of race into a conversation – Folks will look at that and they'll say, well, this this has to be racist because he's drawing a caricature of a, a black tennis player. And because it's a caricature, look, it harkens back to these previous images. It's got to be racist. So, I mean, the reality is I, I believe the guy when he says, oh, I, I was just trying to describe bad behavior. And I was drawing I was drawing illustration of somebody. We we had this happen a lot of times during the Obama years, where you know any editorial column cartoonist who, and now most of them are very liberal, so this doesn't come up. But any of them who wanted to, you know, do cartoons, uh, caricatures, editorial cartoons of Barack Obama, they were always treading on thin ice because people would always say, "Well, all right, this is a this is a black man, an African American man. So if you draw him with any sort of accentuated kind of features." That means that you're going to be inherently racist. Now, Donald Trump, you can draw him with any sort of features that you you want. You can mock whatever you want, but because he's a white male, there, there's no issue here. In this particular case, I don't think that the cartoon was racist, absent some evidence indicating that that was the intent. 
Having said that, though, we live in 2018, and I guess the reality is that when it comes to depicting, in this case, a very, very successful and skilled tennis player who I think had a complete and total meltdown, um, that this is one subject that I guess is taboo that you just have to stay away from because a lot of people are going to say, we know what's in your heart. This had to be racist or be perceived as being racist, even if there wasn't any intent to it. That's where we are in 2018, I guess. It's 142 when we come back. Speaking of President Obama, um, there is a survivor of Benghazi who is on, well, he's on the Secret Services list. I'll tell you that story and we'll discuss. Stick around. 141, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 145, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The Brewers and Cubs continue their huge three-game series from the friendly confines of Wrigley Field. The hunt for Brew October is on. Our Brewers coverage starts at 6.30 this evening. Brew, who is producing the show today and always had the I had the ball game on, had it on TV, had it on the radio like I always do. What a good game. I mean, I, you know, Wayne Larrabee always says it's not who you play, it's when you play them. And there's no question in my mind that the Brewers are, are rounding into form. Um, and, and, of course, they're catching the Cubs at the right time. The, the Brewers, if you will recall, the, their low point of the season came when they had this, like, 23 games in 23 days stretch over the All-Star break, and they lost five games in a row in Pittsburgh. They, they were tired. I, I think that's just what happened. They kind of got worn down. The Chicago Cubs are exactly in that type of stretch right now, where they're playing game after game after game. They got rained out in D.C. on Sunday, and so they got to fly there on Thursday. Keep in mind, that's about the time that that hurricane's supposed to make landfall a little bit further to the south. But they got to get that game in. They don't have days off. They look like a kind of a tired team to me, which isn't to say Cubs aren't incredibly talented, but the Brewers now within one game of of the Cubs. And I, I will admit that after Chicago won one out of three games here last week, I, I thought the division race was it was just over. But it's not. And you can hear the game tonight. Just great baseball. Three to two win yesterday. It was um well played, well pitched. Um it's just it's just fun. It's just fun to watch baseball when it means so much. And again the game is six thirty this evening. All right. We were talking in the first hour of the program about September 11th, 2001. Let's talk a little bit about September 11th, 2012. People might not remember that date as well, but that was the day that the diplomatic compound in Benghazi was attacked by terrorists. And and you, you might recall this. And again, it happened on September 11th. So it was very, very clear, given the timing of the attack and, and given what happened and given the fact that it was on September 11th, the day that to borrow President Roosevelt's term, you know, lives in infamy. And you will remember militants attacked the compound in Benghazi. And what happened is you had, uh, you know, a number of Americans who ended up losing their life as a result of this. You had, um, let's see, two people. State Department staffer um, who ended up losing their lives at the diplomatic attack. Two former Navy SEALs were killed early the following day by a mortar strike on a rooftop at a CIA annex in, in the city. So you will remember the attack. You will remember the controversy about that. The ambassador, Christopher Stevens, Chris Stevens, was one of the people who was killed in that attack. Hillary Clinton at the time 
not wanting to acknowledge that this was a terrorist attack that the U.S. should have been better prepared for, came out and said, no, this wasn't a terrorist attack. This was as a sort of a spontaneous thing that was part of a protest about an anti-Muslim video posted on YouTube. Well, anybody who heard that knew that that was ridiculous. And that was Hillary Clinton trying to deflect blame. She was Secretary of State at the time from what was an obvious failure. But what really incensed the number of the people that were involved there is they knew this was they knew this was a terrorist attack. They knew this wasn't you know something spontaneous that occurred as the result of a, a again of of something that was posted on on YouTube. And this has become the the subject of a number of investigations you know over the years. Well, last week, President Obama, former President Obama, took to the campaign trail. He's trying to gin up support among Democrats to go out and vote Republicans out in November. And, you know, one of the things that he was describing is he got around to talking about Benghazi. And he said that Republicans have seized on a number of wild conspiracy theories like those surrounding Benghazi. Hmm. Now, he didn't say what wild conspiracy theories like those surrounding Benghazi he was talking about. But again, the, the the reality of Benghazi was you had Hillary Clinton and you had other people who tried to pretend that this was something that it wasn't. All right, so I, I don't want to relitigate Benghazi, but here's where it gets interesting. There is, there's a guy named Chris Peranto, former Army Ranger, security contractor who was in Benghazi at the time, and he was one of the people that was involved in repelling attacks on the nearby CIA annex and helping rescue more than 20 people, um, including, and then, of course, you also had the four that were killed during these attacks. So he was one of the guys that was on the ground that was fighting off the terrorists who were trying to come in. So he hears the president, former president, talking about these conspiracy theories like those surrounding surrounding Benghazi. And he goes on TV. He goes on Fox and Friends the other day. And here here's what he has to, to say. He says, it just raises the bile inside of me. And when that came across, that is the President Obama talking about wild conspiracy theories. It just he says it just raises the bile inside of me. And when that came across, I just wanted to reach through the screen and just grab him, grab him, and choke him. I wish I had that man sitting right in front of me now without his secret service. At which point in time, the host on Fox and Friends says, well, you better be careful with that because he's a former president. And the guy says, yeah, I know, but it doesn't get yourself away from saying comments when my friends died in front of me. All right. The Secret Service is apparently aware of his comments. And all they say is, while we do not confirm or comment on the absence or existence of specific investigations, we can say that we investigate all threats against our protectees. So he hears the former president talking about wild conspiracy theories. He's outraged because he was on the scene at the time. And he's, I think, upset that, the again, the Obama administration tried to downplay what actually happened. He says, when I heard him say wild conspiracy theories, I wanted to reach through the screen and grab him. 
grab him and choke him. I wish I had that man sitting in front of me right now without his Secret Service. All right, 414-799-1620. Should this man be in trouble for saying this? Is this a threat against the President of the United States, or is this just, I don't know, a figure of speech? I wish I could reach through the TV screen and grab him and choke him. Is that something that the Secret Service needs to be concerned about or not? 414-799-1620. We discuss in just a moment. What do you think? It's 153. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I'll share with you where I come down on this in just a moment. 155, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Packers fans, get ready for your chance to follow the Packers to Lambeau Field for this week's game against the Minnesota Vikings. Every day on Wisconsin's Morning News, Gene Miller gives you a chance at a VIP experience at this week's Packers game. Listen during the 7 o'clock hour for your chance to follow the Packers to Lambeau Field this Sunday, presented by West Bend, the Silver Lining. All right, so I'm sitting there saying, I am so angry with blank that I'd like to reach through that TV screen and just choke them. All right, is that actually a threat? And if you say that about, say, President Trump, you know, should you be investigated? That's what the question is. Guy says that about the uh, former President Obama. What do you think? Dave and Grafton. Hi, Dave. Dave. Dave, Dave, Dave. Got to turn on your radio. Okay. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I would never, ever, ever endorse making threats against anyone, in particular threats against the President of the United States. But at the same time, this is a figure of speech. I'd like to reach through. Boy, I just I'd like to choke that guy. I can't believe he is saying these things. My colleagues, my friends died. And here he's, you know, continuing to tout these wild conspiracy and things like this. It is a figure of speech. Neil says, Jeff, it all depends. Is the person being threatened a Democrat or Republican? Implying that there are a double standard. Um, Look. Look, here's here's the bottom line of all this. Um, this is a situation where it is, of course, a figure of speech. He's not indicating that there's any intent that he's actually going to go and choke former President Obama. He's just expressing his frustration that you have the, again, President Obama, who's chosen to go back to this particular issue, which was, in my opinion, a low point of the Obama administration. And, you know, again, what happened in Benghazi, I think it's pretty clear. You know, they did not, they did not anticipate the terrorist attack when it happened. They didn't want the bad press of it, so they tried to pawn this off as being, oh, this was something that was just created by this YouTube video, when it wasn't that at all. Nobody believed it at the time, and I think it's been demonstrated pretty clear to be untrue from the beginning. The man was on the ground. He was frustrated with this. He was expressing his frustration. It's a figure of speech. Time to move on. In the next hour of the program, a 16-year-old kills somebody in a hit and run. Should the parents be held accountable? It is an interesting conversation. A local conservative columnist, well, he's gotten the attention of CNN. Did he go too far? We'll discuss that as well. It's 158. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 207, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So, Melissa, I'm at that aggravating stage of my cold where 
I'm actually feeling much better than I have in mm-hmm. three or four days, yeah. you know, and I'm, I'm trying not to take anything at all, but it's just it's centered like at the top oh. of my chest and the bottom of my throat. <laughs> so it's the it, worst. It, well, it is, and I actually, I mean, I feel pretty good. But yeah. every, every once in a while, it's kind of like, like a coughing spell. You get the coughing Oof. spells, right? Which, if you do what we do for a living, that's always a bit of a challenge. Yes. But, Hang with me for another 53 minutes here. But- I, bet, I bet people could give you tips, though. I told you, I always, whenever I have a cold and I'm on the radio, I have just a, a thing of honey right next door and just take a, sp- yeah. a spoonful of that, and that usually... Well, and I mean, I don't have a sore throat, yeah. and, I'm, and I'm breathing through my nose for the first time in like three or four days, and I actually... TMI, I mean, right? Right, I actually, right I, but I actually feel pretty yeah. good, except it's just... It's just like right at the base like of my throat, but that's exactly what it is. Yeah. It's kind of like this little annoying thing, and hopefully by tomorrow I will be past my... September cold. I am famous for getting September colds. My my one year, our, our anniversary is coming up, and I had a monster cold the day I got married. Oh, no. Now, now, Fran was so funny because, like, we're getting ready to get married, and she's sending her sisters out with all sorts of, make sure he takes this, make sure he takes that, make sure he takes all these other things. So In er, sickness and in health, in right? In sickness, yes. right. She <laughs> married me when I had a monster cold, so it, we must have known it was going to work. Yeah. But I'm, we, will, we will survive. All right. Here is the story. Um, The best report of it I found was on Fox 6. Here's the headline. 16-year-old charged as adult in fatal hit and run. Now, now get this. A 16-year-old Milwaukee boy is being charged as an adult in connection with a fatal hit and run crash that claimed the life of a 42-year-old man and left a 31-year-old woman critically injured. Prosecutors say the boy was driving a stolen truck, and he cut off his GPS monitoring device two days before the crash. Okay, so let me just back up. If the 16-year-old has a GPS monitoring device on, that means he has done something really bad as a juvenile. And I don't know what that is, but the catch-and-release Milwaukee County Juvenile Court System has sent this thug out onto the streets. But don't worry, we can keep track of him because he's got a GPS monitoring clone, except he cut it off. All right, let me go. I digress. Here's the Fox 6 report. Authorities were able to identify the suspect through witnesses and social media. In one Facebook post, he bragged about cutting off his GPS monitoring device and the chaos that he wanted to cause. All right, the man who lost, this happened on on August 16th. Garrett Boblett lost his life in the crash at 17th and Highland on August 16th. His passengers were was critically injured. Those who knew Boblett described him as a devoted father and selfless person who made sure never to pass judgment on anyone around him. Prosecutors say just after 4 a.m., a stolen truck was being driven at speeds reaching 84 miles an hour, stolen truck, 4 a.m., 84 miles an hour, when it run, went through a red light and collided with the victim's vehicle. After weeks on the run and several high-speed chases, Brian Vaughn was arrested at 19th and Congo. He is now charged as an adult. As it turned out, Vaughn was on probation, 16 years old. He cut off his GPS monitoring device two days before the crash. Prosecutors say he went on Facebook to brag about it, posting, We hopping fat 
first day off bracelet. We expletive these streets up the rest of 2018 and the whole 2019. All right. Authorities say a few minutes prior to the crash, Vaughn and other passengers in the stolen truck were involved in a purse theft and shots fired incident. Okay, so let us review the bidding here again. You've got a 16-year-old that is presumably on that is on probation for doing something really bad. But instead of being locked up like he should be, he's out on the streets with a GPS monitoring system on so we can keep track of him. He cuts off the GPS monitoring system, goes to Facebook, and brags about this. We're going to cause havoc on the streets. Right, two days later, he's involved in purse theft, stolen car, driving at a high rate of speed. It is four in the morning. He blows through a red light, hits, kills a man, seriously injures um, someone else. And so now, now he has been charged with uh, as an adult. Okay? All right, that, that's all well and good. And hopefully he will be convicted and hopefully this thug will be warehoused for, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years. Oh, Jeff, you're talking about putting a 16-year-old in prison for 20 or 30 years. You're damn right I am. Absolutely. Somebody is dead. Somebody else is critically injured because this thug engaged in this behavior. And, and by the way, after he runs through the intersection, hits and kills this person in a stolen car, he flees, and he's on the lam for several weeks. Did I mention this is 4 a.m. and he's 16 years old? Now, the, the end of the Fox 6 story had a real interesting thing. Um, the, the family of the man who lost his life, they say to Fox 6, these kids are repeat offenders who were out joyriding at 4 a.m. Where were the parents? Parents need to be more involved in their kid's life. The judicial system is failing our kids and the community for not enforcing harsher consequences for auto theft. These cars are being used as weapons with reckless driving and no regards for anyone's loss of life on the road. Well, all right, that, that is obviously true. This is another example of a failure of the Milwaukee County Juvenile Court System that obviously got it wrong. We turned loose a dangerous criminal onto the streets. Oh, Jeff, he's 16 years old. Yeah, I know. He's 16 years old and somebody's dead. All right, he, we turned loose a dangerous criminal that should not have been turned loose. That's on the juvenile justice system that let this go. Huge, huge, huge mistake. Another example of where there is blood on the hands of whatever juvenile judge let this kid loose. Right? That's number one. But, but he did get loose, and he did behave in this fashion. Now, here you have somebody that, again, is out on the streets. He is, he is running wild. He's 16 years old. And the family of the man he ended up killing say, you know, where are the parents? Parents need to be more involved in their kid's life. Now, a lot of times, I kind of dismiss that. That's sort of one of the cliches. You know, we, we ask, where are the parents? And, and, you know, can you hold them responsible? This is one that's really got me thinking. The kid is 16 years old. He is a minor. He is obviously well on the path to a a career of of crime because he's already got the GPS monitoring system. He cuts it off. He goes on Facebook. He steals cars. He behaves in this particular fashion. He's on the lam for weeks. He's 16 years old. Is it fair to ask where the parents are. And is it fair, 
in a situation like this to hold parents accountable in some way, shape, or form? Should parents be responsible for the behavior of their 16-year-olds? Should parents be under obligations to say, all right, we know where he is. We're not just going to let the kid run the streets. We're not going to let him be out at 4 a.m. We're not going to let him cut off his GPS bracelet. Is it fair to hold parents responsible for the criminal behavior of their known thug kid? And in this case, there can't be any doubt at all as to whether you know anybody knew that this kid was a thug. Of course he was. He's got that criminal history. Should there be accountability for whatever adult? And we don't let 16-year-olds, I mean, 16-year-olds are still minors. There was somebody who was supposed to be responsible for this punk, and they failed. They failed. They couldn't control him. Should parents be held responsible when children, or whoever the responsible party is, whether it's parents or it's grandparents or uncle or aunt or whoever is responsible for, I don't know, taking care of this kid, should they be held accountable when the kid behaves in this fashion? And this is not, like I say, this isn't some unforeseeable type of thing. This isn't something where you say, gee, we had no, we had no idea that, you know, little Johnny would go out and do type this stuff like this. He had every idea. This kid was a time bomb waiting to go off and he did. Do you, is it fair to hold the parents accountable? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage talk and text line. My answer is yes. I, I think, I think it is. And this idea, especially when you have these juveniles who are well on their way to being career criminals, if they are going to be turned loose into the community, GPS monitoring system or whatever, they need to be under the custody and the supervision of some responsible person. And if that person doesn't do their job, well, yeah, I think it's fair to hold that person accountable. 414-799-1620. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 218 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 220 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Lots of failures here. Milwaukee County Juvenile Court Justice System got it wrong. They took a dangerous predator, turned him loose on the streets with GPS monitoring. He proudly cut off his GPS monitoring bragged on Facebook how he did it, talked about how he was going to create havoc on the streets, stole a car, drove it through a red light, hit and killed a 41-year-old man, went on the lam for weeks, finally has been caught. Now he's going to be tried as an adult when he's convicted. Hopefully he will be sent to prison for 20 or 30 years. Yes, I know he's 16. I don't care. People are dead as a result of this. But my question is, whoever somebody had to be responsible for this kid, 16 years old, four in the morning, out in a stolen car. In these circumstances, whoever that responsible person is, whoever that adult was, whether it's mom or dad or mom and dad or aunt and uncle or grandma or grandpa, they failed miserably. Should they be held accountable as well? Clifton on the north side, you're on WTMJ. Hi, I was saying that uh, it's a double-edged blade because unfortunately it isn't like the old days when you and I grew up, and if our parents paddled us, I'm 50, by the way. If our parents paddled us, that's so be it. You know, if they mentioned that to somebody, somebody, everybody agreed. Well, if that's what little Johnny needed, it isn't that way anymore. So their hands are tied. If they do anything to discipline them, all of a sudden the courts are looking at him. There is a thing that the kids do in high school nowadays where if they want to get off of punishment or get back at their parents, 
they'll say, their friends will tell them, just come to school and claim you were whooped or abused any kind right. of way. And, and, and as soon as they do it, Child Protective Services, because the schools are mandatory reporters, Child, Child Protective Services get involved, and there you are. Right. I've had this happen to me. I was vindicated. However, the fact that I went through this, that because I disciplined my daughter for lying or doing something she shouldn't have been doing, was ridiculous. And so, unfortunately, that parent might be frustrated up to their eyeballs. And short of a whole bunch of legal work and going into court and saying, I'm legally turning over my kid, which is saying I'm legally giving up on them, what can you do? Well, so but how, let me give you, but let me give you an example. You say what, and I, and I appreciate everything you're saying, Clifton, but what about something like this? The kid is 16 years old. It, he's supposed to be living with you. It's four in the morning. He's, he's not there. Um, is it unreasonable to say, all right, the kid is gone. It's the middle of the night. Maybe that's where you call the police or the kid has been released. He's got this GPS bracelet on. My kid has cut the GPS bracelet off. I mean, I, I understand you can't lock the kids up in, in situations like this because clearly the kid is a thug. But but do you have at least some duty to pay attention and say, all right, he, he's gone. He's out in the middle of the night. I know there's nothing good to come of this. I've lost track of him. Is it too much to expect that call to be made? Okay, so let's say he cut it off. You have no way of knowing that. Unless you're inspecting your kid each day, well, yeah. until you see him, if he cut it off at 10 at night, and unless you're going to stay up and play guard over your kid, mm-hmm. you don't know it until maybe the next morning. Okay, let's say he went out at 12 a.m., and you're asleep because I know I get up at 4.30 in the morning. Yeah. So I, I can't play guard over his room. But when you do get up and discover it, you say, okay, well, I'm going to call somebody. In the case that he had a ankle bracelet, then usually you have somebody that would be more or less the role like a probation officer, mm-hmm. someone who is over his case. So you call that person and you say, I woke up this morning and he wasn't here. And right. they're going to say, okay, we're going to put out a warrant for him. Yep. So in a minute... Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Cliff, your, your, your cell phone is cutting out. And, 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 okay, and, I, and I understand. I guess that's what's good. Th- that one of the things that will be interesting about this case is going to be what sort of supervision was there? Now, obviously, it was inadequate. You know, were people looking for him? Was he released into somebody's custody? But you would ha- you would have to be. He- he's 16 years old. He would have to be released into somebody's custody. And I understand I understand people do things behind the back of their parents. But just, just to answer your question, yes, if I had a 16-year-old that was released on probation with a condition that he wear a GPS monitoring system, you can bet your bottom dollar that if I was the responsible party, I would be on a regular basis checking to make sure he had that GPS monitoring system on him. And, and, and yeah, I understand that kids sneak out. My guess is when all is said and done about this, it's going to turn out that this kid wasn't sneaking out. This kid was just running the streets wild. That's, you know, that's, uh, I think, what the reality of this is going to be. Let's talk to Connie on the West Side. Connie, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hello. Um, I guess I pretty much ex- agree with the last caller. You know, you need to be responsible for checking on them. And if, when you discover they're not there, then as a responsible adult, you should be calling their probation person or calling the police department and saying, look, this kid of mine is supposed to be on, on an ankle bracelet. It's not on him anymore, and he's gone. And, right. I mean, that would help ameliorate 
the responsibility of the parent because, I mean, depending on the size of that 16-year-old, you may not be able to physically restrain them or like they can speak out. But you don't but think it's unfair to say you got to make that call? You know, no, it, not right. in the least. Yeah. <laughs> No, well, right, and I guess that—that's my, you know, that—that's my point here. And I guess I mean, look, the the under, the underlying problem here is the kid was released in the first place, you know, and and that's that this it is very clear that this this child, this boy, as the the TV report calls him, shouldn't have been on the streets. I mean, he shouldn't have been given probation. He was again not ready for that. He's a career criminal, and as a result of that, somebody's dead. I guess I'm I'm just frustrated, Connie, that you know we have these stories all the time. People who shouldn't be out on the streets, they're out on the streets, and honest, decent, hardworking people are dead because of that. That's true. Um... Years a few years ago, the lady that was shot at, on on Lisbon Avenue at six o'clock on a Sunday morning, one of the the guys that was involved in that had been involved in a shooting and a death just less than a right. year before that, and he was on an ankle bracelet per se. Yeah, yep. Now again, it, it's all these different types of things, and this is why I will also admit that is one of my frustrations that you have all these politicians who are saying. Well, we need to close Lincoln Hills because it's just too punitive. No, that is not the answer. Now, I don't care about closing Lincoln Hills, but but if the idea is we're going to close Lincoln Hills and we're going to build a series of juvenile correctional facilities across the state that are closer to home, I don't have a problem with that. But if it's no, we're going to close Lincoln Hills so we can give more chances to these dangerous criminals. And, and yes, at the age of 15 and 16, you can be a dangerous criminal. Don't believe me? Talk to the family members of the people who, the man who lost his life when, you know, he's out in the street and somebody driving a stolen car at the age of 16 blows through a red light at 4 o'clock in the morning and kills him and then goes on the lam. Yes, they are dangerous people. And at some point in time, we need to start protecting the rest of us. This, I think, was a failure on a number of areas. Failure on the part of the juvenile court system. They shouldn't have given this guy another chance. Failure on the part of whoever was supposed to be supervising him. And, of course, again, as a result, innocent people pay. 228, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 235, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Uh, I talk to a lot of people who listen to the program on the podcast. And then somebody says, well, how do you do that? Well, you go to WTMJ.com. You see this thing that says mobile apps, and you could subscribe to the Wagner Show podcast. And I know lots of people do that. If you can't hear it from noon until 3, listen from noon until 1, and then you can catch the last two hours of the program on the podcast. Go to WTMJ.com, hit the mobile app section, and then subscribe. Uh, really appreciate that. A couple weeks ago, we, we did a topic that I found to be really interesting, and I got a lot of interesting feedback from it. It was about It was a story about a guy who, at the age of 18, came from Mississippi to Chicago. And his brother was working as a cook at a pancake house in Wilmette, Illinois, outside of Chicago. And the brother got the guy a job as a busser, busboy, whatever you want to call it. All right? Well, the okay, Jeff, why was that an interesting story? It happens all the time. What was interesting is the guy went to work. This happened in the early 60s. He has been at the same job for 50-some years. He's been a busser at the same restaurant doing essentially the same job for 50 years. There was a big piece on him in the Chicago Tribune. And the, the, kind of the tone of the piece was, well, he, he's done this for all these years. I mean, what's the matter? And, and his response was, I don't understand why this is a story. I like what I do. I, I, I never wanted to be a server. 
I never wanted to get into management. He says, I see what the managers have to put up with. I, I like what I do. I show up on time. I, I'm, you know, I don't get rich, but I made enough money to support my wife and a, a child. I, I just, I like it. I don't want to be any more than this. And I, I just, we did a topic about that. I, I had a lot of respect for that. It's like, all right, well, you know, not everybody needs to be or aspire to be president of the United States. There is a value in honest work. And here's a guy that had a great work ethic. I, I think it's a success story. All right, which, which brings me to this story involving the, this guy named um, Jeffrey Owens. Maybe you've heard about it. What, what happens is there are these two women. They're at a Trader Joe's in New Jersey. And they're looking at the guy who is checking them out. The guy that's, he's working as a cashier and a bagger, right? And they think he looks really familiar. Where do we know this guy from? Right? So they don't talk to him. So they go out in the parking lot and they start trying to think, where do we know this guy from? And they say, I know where we recognize him from. He used to be on the Cosby show. And Jeffrey Owens, I, I got to confess, I never watched the Cosby show, but he, he apparently was a supporting character on the Cosby show from 1987 to 19, you know, 92. He, he, he played, uh, let's see, he played Sandra Huxtable's boyfriend, Elvin, Elvin Thibodeau. All right. You're nodding your head, Gru. You, you, watch, you know who this guy was? You do. Okay. I, I, I just never watched the Cosby show, but anyhow. So apparently, you know, since then, that was the Cosby Show. I mean, he he stopped his involvement with it in 1992. So you've you know that that's 25 years later. His background is he he went to Yale, graduated from Yale, cum laude. He picks up. Apparently, he still he still acts from time to time. But you know he he gets small acting gigs from time to time. He teaches. He teaches classes in acting at universities, but he's still trying to pursue his dream as an actor. But he needs to make ends meet. So what he does is he works at this grocery store as a cashier and and a bagger because the hours are flexible. If he needs to get off to go do an audition or something, he can get off and go do the audition or something. He's he's happy. All right. this This is what he does. And I guess he figures as he's 57 years old now as, as a working actor. Well, this is kind of the thing. You know, sometimes you're going to get gigs and you're going to get performances and you'll make a little bit of money. Other times you're going to be, well, waiting tables or in this case, he works as a cashier at a Trader Joe's. Well, anyhow, what happens with this story is the, these two women without telling him, um, they, 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 they figure out who he is. And so then they go back and again, without telling him, they take his picture. You know, while he's working. And then they put it up on the Internet. And then, as the Internet is wont to do, it, it goes viral. And there's all these stories about, oh, look at this. It's kind of like the tone is how how the successful have fallen. And isn't it awful that you have this guy who was this, I, mean, I don't know if he was ever a famous actor, but who was this part of this incredibly successful TV show. And the whole pitch is, and now he's reduced to, you know, bagging groceries and working at a cashier's at a Trader Joe's. So then what happens is you have a couple of these, you know, modern day stars who say, oh, this is just, you know, rags to riches here. You know, what we're going to do is we're going to, you know, we're going to like reach out to him and we're going to try to find him jobs and we're going to try to make sure that we can help him out. Meanwhile, you know, he's doing interviews saying, 
hey, you know, I'm okay. I mean, this is, I, I'm doing what I like. Would I have loved to have been a big movie star? Would I have loved to have been Tom Cruise or something like that? Well, well, yeah, but I'm doing okay. This is my life. I'm not asking for sympathy. I I teach acting classes. I get small parts here and there. And to make ends meet, I work as a bagger at Trader Joe's. Four one and a cashier. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. There, there's all sorts of people out there that their immediate reaction when they find that this is what this guy is doing now to help make ends meet along with the other things is to feel really sorry for him. Oh, gee, how did your life end up like in this situation? Isn't this terrible? I guess my take is exactly the opposite. First of all, shame on these women for, I think, being somewhat exploitive, deciding that they're going to publicize this guy's situation without even talking to him. Okay, that's number one. But but number two, I, he's not feeling sorry for himself. Should anybody else feel sorry for himself? I mean, that that's for him. The, the reality is, he this is what he does. And it's, I mean, my guess is that there's lots of people out there who work, for example, you want to be an actor? Okay, this is what you, this is what you got to do to make ends meet. You, you want to be a baseball player, all right? You're a minor league baseball player, so during the offseason, you're working selling insurance or you're working, I don't know, doing roofing or, or whatever that might be. I mean, isn't there they, – they call this job shaping, I guess. And, I mean, I don't feel sorry for him at, at all. He doesn't feel sorry for himself. I don't think there, there's anything wrong at all with what this guy is doing. As a matter of fact – I give him a lot of credit for being out there saying, okay, this is this is just what my life is. This is what I have to do to make ends meet. And by the way, I mean, I like doing this because it gives me flexibility. It gives me free time. I like this better than, say, the typical nine-to-five job that wouldn't let me go off and do, I, I don't know, wouldn't let me leave to do auditions or wouldn't let me, you know, kind of come and go as I want. Should we feel sorry for this man? He doesn't feel sorry for himself. 414-799-1620. I don't think there's anything wrong with being a cashier at a Trader Joe's or a busser, you know, at a pancake house in Wilmette, Illinois for your entire life. If it's something that it's honest work, if it's something that you, you know, like to do or it fits in with your schedule or you want to do it, God bless you. And who are other people to say, oh, this is terrible. He was a successful actor. He was on the show. And now look, now he's. Bussing tables, or, or now he's ringing up uh, groceries at Trader Joe's. Who cares? What's wrong with ringing up groceries at Trader Joe's? 414-799-1620. Dusty in Delafield. Dusty, you're in WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. How's it going? Real well, thank you. What do you think? I think it is job shaming, and I think it's sad. The guy's very happy with himself, with his career. The hours are flexible. He gets to do what he wants to do. It's a shame we live in a society where people look down on people like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I got to admit, I don't know what I'm going to do once I stop doing this. But, you know, if, if somebody from some golf course said, hey, Jeff, you know, we'll give you a part-time job being a starter at a golf course and tell you what, you know, you work a few hours, we'll pay you a little bit of money, and then you get to play free golf, are, are people going to feel sorry for me? Oh, there's this guy that used to be this big guy on the radio. Now now he's a starter at a golf course. You know, I got to tell you, Dusty, if I end up doing that, you don't have to feel sorry for me. It's it's because I chose to do something like that. Cause you, know, it, yeah. you know, the kicker might be that the people who say and feel sorry for him 
they're the ones who aren't really happy, and we should feel sorry for them. Yeah, maybe. I mean, thanks for calling. Exactly. And I mean, and it is a little bit irritating because, like I say, th- these two women, they see him, they they publicize this without him asking. They don't ask his, they don't ask his permission, and, and they put this up there. And then, of course, the spin is, well, how pathetic. Here's this guy. And, you know, I, I mean, he graduated from Yale. He's not destitute. He's not living in a flop house. You know, he, he's not doing crack in an alley. This is just, this is how he makes ends meet now between acting gigs. My guess is there's all sorts of people, even at the mid-50s, who are still chasing that acting dream, and they're waiting tables, and they're doing these other jobs. Jeff in Heartland. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, great show. Thank um, you, sir. This reminds me of a book that I once read about a, a true story about a guy named Richard McCandless. And he was a very, you know, very wealthy family, and he was a graduate from Yale or Harvard, lots of money from mom and dad, and he gave it all to charity one day and started hitchhiking. And it's a story of all of his travels, and each town that he would go to, he'd get an odd job, you know, whatever it took, a cook or, you know, dishwashing, farming. When he left after about a month, he left all the money on the bed and went back on foot, and he eventually died in Alaska. But the long story short was that he said countless times in this book that he wrote that it, it, you, you don't know how good you have it until you lose it many times. Uh-huh, yeah. So he, he loved that feeling of losing everything, uh-huh. and that was his thing. So, no, I think this guy should do, be able to do what he wants. It's his dime. It's his life, and, yeah. you know, uh, well, for the rest of us to say what he should be doing, Right, uh, exactly. Or, or, thanks, sure. or, or that I mean, I mean, it, it's honest. I mean, look, it, it's it's honest work. It fits the guy's schedule. Well, I mean, it, it is. It's. The, I think there's this attitude that okay, if you're, I mean, fill in the blank. This job is demeaning. That job is demeaning. Bull. I mean, it, it's it's honest work. Um, I I think the story about the guy who was the the busser at the restaurant in um, Wilmette, Illinois. I think that's a success story. I mean, he's happy. He found this piece. He okay. Maybe some people would say, "Well, I don't know. You you know, it's does this mean it's a lack of ambition? No, it just means that you know that wasn't important to him. He made enough money to support his family to live on. All right, and he didn't need any more. And I'm sure he got fulfillment from other areas of his life. Here's a text, Jeff. This is the problem with the world today. People can't mind their own business and just let people be. Then it all goes on the internet to make it everyone else's business. It's not fair to this man or anyone else. Yeah, he's saying, look, I, and it is, I mean, I guess I, I was sort of curious about, it was this going to be a story about, oh, how the mighty have fallen? And he's like, oh, look, I, this is just, it's what I end up, it's what I end up doing. We're going to take a couple more calls on this in just a minute. If you're on the line, please hold on. 247, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 251, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, so last February, we're in Key West, my wife and I. And there's this thing, it's called the Conk Train, C-O-N-C-H. It's like, like a Zoomobile, but it's, it's like, so these little, like, I don't know, like these little tour things, and it, it's a two hour tour, goes through the island, alright? So, Fran and I are on it, and at one point in time, and this woman already knows me too well, she looks at me and says, I know what you're thinking. And I said, what's that? She said, you're thinking you'd love to do this. You'd love to be the guy that drives the Conk Train and does, this is the Hemingway house, and do all that stuff. And I said, you're, you're right, I, I would. Now, I don't think we're ever, I love going to Key West. We'll probably go there once a year, but I don't think we're ever moved there. But if we move there, yeah, I, I, I think that would be a kick to drive the conch train and be the guy that do, does those tours. I, and you know, you don't have to feel sorry for me. Oh, I can't believe he ended up there. Oh, I think this is, uh, this is just kind of the way it's, you know, I think this is the way it is. Here's a note. Jeff, in five years, I'll be renting jet skis on Marco Island, Florida. 
Do not feel sorry for me. I'll be fine. Joe on the northwest side. Joe, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Yeah, this, this is why the rest of the world looks at us as greedy, disgusting pigs. <laughs> I mean, 99% of this world's population would die to be this guy chasing his dreams mm-hmm. and making some money and making ends meet. And these two women belittle him. I find these people on Facebook doing this, and I relentlessly torture them. <laughs> I bring up their pictures. I body shame them. <laughs> well, well, let's. Yeah, well, Joe, let, let's not get carried away there. But yeah, after they post this stuff on Facebook, then apparently a lot of people are out there and they're making fun of him. Okay, he's fifty-seven years old. He's a little bit pudgy. All right, it happens. Trust me. So they're making funny of fun of him. It's like, oh, this is how you end up. No, he ended. He ended up just fine. He's pursuing his dream. As an actor, and that's fine. Here's a text here from Mike. He says, my daughter is out in L.A. She works as a production designer. Sometimes there is work in her field, um, other times not. But she works at honest work to pay her rent, and I couldn't be more proud of her pursuing her career and doing what she needs to do to be a productive citizen. To which I say to all this, amen. So I, I understand maybe some people looked at the story of this guy and said, oh, my gosh, he was uh, he was a star on The Cosby Show in 1992, and now he's... He's bagging groceries at a Trader Joe's. Well, he, he's doing just fine. The, the guy who's the busser at the pancake place in Chicago, he's doing just fine. The guy who wants to rent jet skis in Marco Island is just fine. And if you're down in Key West a few years from now and you happen to see or hear a voice that sounds familiar and it turns out to be me driving that conk train, you don't need to have a tag sale for me. The truth is I will be doing just fine. 254. When we come back, we'll find out what John and Melissa have on their minds. Please stick around.